G'day. Welcome to Stages. I'm Peter Ayers. I recently spent some time in Perth where I was able to record some terrific conversations with West Australian identities and artists, all contributing to a very vibrant art scene in the West. Over the next few weeks they will be featured on Stages and will add to the cultural landscape we all share across the nation. Much to look forward to. My first guest from the West is West Australian Opera's Executive Director, Carolyn Chard. Carolyn Chard has an eclectic taste in music. She is moved equally by the heavy beat of dance music or the gentle and beautiful melodies that speak to the soul. However, it is the power of the classics and great composers of opera that propel her through her workday as the Executive Director of West Australian Opera. Roles at Opera Australia and Deck Chair Theatre and Barking Gecko in WA nurtured a great passion for the power of theatre. These positions followed her completion of the Arts Management degree at the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts. Informing her decision to pursue Arts Management was her early producing forays in fashion and the rave scene. Working in the banking industry also provided terrific grounding, eclectic experiences indeed that helped to shape the practitioner and guide the artistic journey. Career paths are always fascinating and the rewards can be most satisfying. Ms Chard talks with great candour about her unique journey to arrive at the helm of West Australia's triumphant opera company. Carolyn, thanks for talking to Stages today. You're welcome. I'm, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to chat to you. Uh, you were born in Vancouver? I was. I was. My father was a paleontologist. Um, he met my mum in Cyprus, they're both English, but um, met down there when my mum was a teacher, found their way to Canada. Sure, a few years later, found our way back to New Zealand, um, Christchurch, where my sister was born, and then finally came across to Perth. So how old were you when you arrived in Perth? Oh, that would have been the late 60s, probably about eight, uh, something like that, yeah. So you're a West Australian yeah. that, I'm a West Australian. that wasn't born here. Exactly, yeah. exactly, went to school here. Do you remember... Um, what was it that struck you about Perth on arrival? Is there oh, anything gosh. that stands out? Because I have something I remember when I arrived. Yeah, look, I don't know if this is a false memory. I don't know if it's my memory as a child or something I reflect on now. But whenever I sort of land in Perth, I'm always fascinated by the light and the quality of yeah. the light. So, yeah. you know, the blueness of the sky. And yeah, there's something about the light here that um, is quite different, I think, to anywhere else. Yeah, it's a very intense light. Yeah, too, I think. yeah. Um, I was also struck by the brown stains everywhere from the ball water. Yeah, on, yeah. On fences and the footpaths and... That's interesting. I think that's something I just get used to. You get used so to I'm, it. I'm not actually aware of it until you point it out. And then, yeah, you don't actually see that in other places. No, no, yeah. not at all. I, I thought, why, why is everything so dirty? What, yeah, was yeah. it dirty? It's a stain because it's the ball water. Ball water. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I remember travelling um, with my brother from Kalgoorlie to Perth and I was reading That Eye the Sky by Tim mm -hmm. Winton. Mm -hmm. And he kept talking about these plants called black boys. Yes. I thought, what's it? And he was describing them. And then I looked out the, uh, the window and there they were yeah, all yeah. over the place. Yeah, yeah, the grassy trees. The grassy trees, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, and that view from King's Park is fantastic too. Yeah, so lucky to have King's Park on our doorstep. Yeah. That was really visionary, I think, keeping it and not actually, you know, selling it off as real estate. So arriving in Perth, what were your artistic influences as a child? Did you, did you learn an instrument? I did. My brother and I played piano. He then went on to a trumpet scholarship at Perth Modern. 
Um, and we both played the piano and did little competitions down at the Perth Town Hall. Um, I think he probably did a little better than I did. <laughs> um, I also did ballet for many, many years. Um, so I did ballet from being a young child, but I do remember going to the Perth Concert Hall and seeing the Nutcracker all these, those years ago. And my younger brother was also at that performance and he and one of his friends came along to one of my ballet classes in South Perth and his friend went on to dance with the Australian ballet, um, Stephen Heathcote. Yep. Um, so that was all sort of, you know, those formative years where something really sort of just knocks your socks off and you just think, wow, this is really beautiful stuff. I don't think I knew that I wanted to work in the arts at that stage, but certainly um, I, you know, kind of dressed up my dolls and did ballet, played the piano, did tennis lessons, you know. It was also in those days where you just had a really fresh outdoor life you know rode your bike everywhere went to the park which was across the road you know it was a days before devices just be home before the street lights come on exactly exactly <laughs> you know and then you'd make your own little concerts we'd have friday night concerts where everyone would have to do something you know you'd have to sing or dance or recite a poem or something like that i mean that's kind of unheard of now and indeed even when my daughter was growing up and she's in her 30s now and she'll hate me saying that um but you know it's not something that you did it was a really kind of pure upbringing in a way but it, it kind of makes you be very creative because you've got to be imaginative. So it really sparks your imagination, I think, yeah. more than anything else. Who, who were the adults that you were looking up to at the time? Was there a particular teacher or family member that inspired um, you? I often think of that question. And no, I think it's just sort of an amalgam of people around you. I can remember a few sort of individual names. Takes a village. Yeah, I don't think it was any one influence, um, which sometimes I get sad about and think, where was that one person who could actually mentor you and take you under their wing and really give you their knowledge and their experience? And I don't think there was any one person who actually did that. Um, I think I've also been always very self-driven and sort of decided what I want to focus on. Or, and I was also fairly solitary. You know, I'd read a lot of books and um, entertain myself a lot, I think. Yeah. I guess there's been a few mentors in your professional life. Yes. That you can call upon to... Yeah, absolutely. To learn. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, those people sort of come along the way through... I mean, when I went to WAPA, certainly a lot of mentors there. Um, and, again, they were the people that were running the course, so people like Malcolm Moore and Bruce Finlayson, and they always sort of imparted lots of gems of wisdom and things that I would always sort of remember. And then moving into the industry, um, often it's chairs or board members who I've been um, really supported by, and I've sort of used them as sounding boards or, you know, ways of getting advice and... Um, there's been many, many chairs. I remember when I was at Deck Chair Theatre, the chair, when I actually left Deck Chair because I was offered my next position, um, she said, how do you know when it's time to leave? And it's a question that's never left me. Um, you know, it was just sort of those little tiny things that imprint on your memory and you think, you know, how do you know when it's time to move on to another experience or opportunity, be it a job or any yeah. other decision that you're actually making? And I thought that's actually really curious. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah, because yeah. some people just don't know when to leave and they stay, yeah. outstay their yeah. usefulness. Yeah. yeah, and I've never forgotten that. And I, 
you know, even answering your question, I found it really interesting because I said, well, you know, I was everything lined up and I was offered an opportunity and you sort of just go with that opportunity. It's that whole thing of sort of saying yes and, you know, trying to kind of move on to the next thing. So some of that was a little bit organic, but I've never forgotten that. And I moved on to um, a company where I had another chair, Michael Smith, who said to me, just always be the best you can be. And I know that sounds like a cliche, but that's never left me either. Yeah. You know, just always try a little bit harder, work a little bit harder, think a little bit harder, um, and just try to be the best you can be. Um, certainly at the opera company, I've had many, many people here who have supported me. And, you know, again, they've mainly been the chairman, and they've all been men. I don't think I've had a, a chairwoman since um, Deche Theatre, <laughs> which was a woman. Um, and I think... Yeah, some of the, I guess because they come um, from the corporate sector, so, you know, there was um, over the last, probably the last 15, 20 years, we tried to corporatise boards, so you get a lot of people coming and sitting on arts boards from the corporate sector, but there's a lot of lessons that in the arts you might not think about in the same way as in a profession, and it just really prompts you to kind of think slightly outside your own square and in the arts we're always thinking outside the box but it just pushes you even further outside that box so tell me about uh, the fascination with medieval literature (laughs) (laughs) so that was probably when I was really young and so you finished secondary school and thought what can I do at tertiary level yeah so I went to uh, University of Western Australia and I, I just started I only did first year there and I left um for a lot of reasons but um I think I was just really romantic and not really thinking about any kind of career. So I studied medieval literature and literature and just... What, the Canterbury Tales? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Just lived in a world of kind of, I suppose, make-believe. And I guess actually now that you say it, and I hadn't thought of that in years, but now that you say that, I think I've stayed in that world of make-believe. Yes, yes, very much so. You know, all the way through my working life, you know. But look, even even making dresses for your dolls. Yeah. Because you eventually went into fashion design as well, I did. didn't you? Yeah. I did. So I was at university for just just a year or so, and then I really wanted to go out into the big wide world with all my friends who were earning good money and travelling and enabling themselves to do things. So I actually went to a bank. Ah, oh, right. And I went nice. To- uh, <laughs> regular routine secure position secure position and that was in the days where I started off um, basically having to balance at the end of every day all of the deposits that came in and I did that on a ledger machine which (laughs) and then we developed into one day we got a computer and the computer was it was a mainframe computer which took up an entire room the whole heart of the thing I mean honestly it's just ridiculous and now there's um, probably more power on the mobile phone exactly yeah. exactly yeah. 100% yeah. but um at night school I was doing fashion design so I always knew that wasn't enough to occupy me sort of looking at numbers and I'm not really a numbers person as anybody who knows me can attest but um I think I was good at my job um, I ended up at the um, credit control center in the city here and I liked it. It wasn't a bad job. And as you say, it was very secure. And we got, you know, fabulous home loan interest rate. And I had wonderful conditions. I actually left on maternity leave um, when I had my daughter. And even in those days, there was wonderful, wonderful benefits, you know. Um, so I had, you know, uh, wonderful conditions. But um, I went to uh, Bentley TAFE 
studied fashion design, so I started off a couple of units at night school and then I went into that full time. And I loved it. Um, I loved the design aspect and again being very freely creative. What I didn't like was being sort of literally hemmed in. Get it? Huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> getting it kind of, you know, hemmed into having to be really rigorous. I mean, I remember having to sew um, straight lines on fabric again and again and again and again to be really sort of perfect in a practical sense and I never wanted to be practical about it I just wanted to be you know just design stuff and be really free and creative what was your aesthetic did you favour any particular looks? I mean, we're talking the 80s, I we're imagine. 80s, Big shoulders. So, yeah, <laughs> anything that, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, lots of, yeah, beautiful fabrics and heaviness and pointiness. And um, I think from that, what I loved about fashion, I think, was being able to express yourself, but also the event side that went with that. So I then started doing, you know, you have to show your clothes. So you do, you know, um, photography shoots and yep. fashion parades so through fashion parades which in those days were sort of in, in nightclubs and things it got me into having a look at how to present things in the world of, of nightclubs which sort of took me on a different route um, to starting to produce shows and things like that there were some great parties in the 80s and 90s yeah. dance parties so um, the shows that you're producing were the, the entertainments uh, of the time? Yeah, yeah. So we were sort of doing little fashion parades, but suddenly I realised I was actually better at organising things. So um, I, with a group of you know people that I was with at the time, we started putting on the dance parties. So we actually produced them, the very early dance parties, sort of before the rave scene hit. So right. and uh, in, in the 80s. This is in Perth. Right. And they were called things like the Black Dance Parties. So big old warehouse parties, which looking back, you think they were kind of well, frightfully o- risky. <laughs> Occupational health and safety oh, now. Absolutely. Would, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think we were aware of all that at the time. But they were great they parties were, because of that, I think. They the, were, the venues were extraordinary. They were amazing. They were amazing. And it would just be fantastic DJs, fantastic music, fantastic atmosphere. So were you um, flying in DJs from the East yeah. Coast? and Well, we were getting them from, if people were sort of coming in to do an Australian tour. So, um, you know, we had DJ Sasha and Kevin Saunderson. So, you know, the English, the great English DJs and the great American DJs. And um, they would sort of come in on that scene. or um, And then we'd sort of Everything was just very sort of arty, I suppose. So um, there'd be lots of little pop-up performances, and you know we'd work a lot with people who had come out of Whopper and were just sort of starting to be an actor or whatever, and just say, you know, do whatever you want. Here's a stage, be free, do something really creative and really wonderful. So there was just a real synergy that came together at that time, um, which is really interesting. I don't think you find that now because I think we are perhaps a little bit more. Um, well, I suppose it's, it's all about up. risk. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think we've become really conservative. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah, because of the society we live in, but yeah. we are sort of more conservative. So it was just kind of like, you know, a nut that was cracked wide open and they were wonderful, wonderful days. 
See what I did then? Stitched up? Yes, yeah, very you. clever. <laughs> Touche. You also had a, a column uh, in uh, the paper, Clubland. Yes. And you probably wouldn't get that now. You would not get that With now. With the, the no. demise of a lot of print media. Exactly. Yeah. And that really came out of um, you know what was happening in the music scene at the time. And this is the alternative music scene. So that was um, all about sort of talking about what was happening in the nightclubs, what DJs were coming through, what acts were coming through, um, or if people had... Uh, uh, you know, um, CDs or something they wanted to promote. It was all sort of captured in this weekly column every single week in the West Australian. Um, and that was actually really interesting. And they were the days before, you know, today's technology. So it was all, you know, I would sort of hand scribe notes if I was interviewing somebody. I would um, then try and type it up on my old um, computer that, you know, you'd have to actually stick the floppy disk in to even get it to start up. And then I had a really old fashioned, uh, well, it was new at the time, a fax machine. I had my very own fax machine in my own house. I can't tell you how proud I was when the day I bought that. Yeah. I thought it was so amazing. <laughs> And then you'd, you know, you'd file your stories by faxing it through. Right. Or you'd actually get in your car with a bit of paper that you printed out and you'd take that paper and file it in a building, you know. So the whole technology was very different there as well. But um, that was fascinating. I'd get calls in the middle of the night from some band saying, I've got your number and I believe you're interviewing me. And I'd be on the hop going, oh my goodness, I am. Um, you know, because it was all kind of very vague and whatnot. But... Um, yeah, really interesting days. Do you think there are any skills that you acquired in promotions and marketing of, of those uh, dance events and rave scene that, that you now use in running an opera company? Yeah, I do. And I think they're probably the skills that you hone, partly because you have to, um, but you realise, you know, if, if you said to me today, could I run a dance party? I'd probably go, oh my God, no, that's so huge. So some of it is the naivety, but I think you have to be very, very organized. So you've got to have a very good attention to detail. You've got to really think things through. You've got to preempt things. You've got to have a bit of initiative. You've got to be quite innovative. Um, and I guess the thing, and I'd say this to sort of, you know, my young sort of contemporaries coming through arts management at WAP or anything else, um, you've got to work really hard. Like the hours are endless. Today the hours are in a way easier because we all have devices, so I know you can't switch off. But in the old days, before devices, yeah. it was always you physically in a room. So you'd be working all the hours of the day and night and you'd be in your office environment or, or whatever it might be. Rather than, you know, you can be at home, you can be, you know, at a social event or out to dinner and you can still check your emails so you're kind of multitasking in a different way but I think um, yeah one of the things I learned was um, to work really really hard yeah. be the best person you can yeah 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 what type of music do you listen to uh, to chill out now I listen to anything at all um, I like if I've got the radio on it's probably been you know if someone else has been in the car and they've left it on a certain channel um, last week I was driving with my daughter and I've got a brand new little granddaughter oh congratulations and uh, she fell asleep in the car to Drax and I was just like oh my god I'm so proud of you because it <laughs> just had this really loud beat underneath it yeah. and I was just like that's fantastic and my daughter used to fall asleep in the car to Sade Diamond life and those yeah. sorts of things. Yeah. So, um, you know, yeah, I, I'm very open in my taste, but I love something with a really heavy dance beat underneath it. Yeah. And I love 
you know, contemporary music. Um, obviously, I also have a great appreciation for the classics as well. But um, I think it's whatever. I guess I'm motivated by like the emotional side of life. So it's whatever kind of appeals to your emotion and how you feel at the time. So sometimes if you're in a particular mood, you've got to turn music off and go, oh my God, that's just getting under my skin. Yeah. Um, and you turn over, the, you know, you, you find another track on your playlist that actually is going to make you feel uplifted or feel the way you feel at that time. Yeah. So, and that really speaks to the power of music and how it has an effect on your emotions and your mood. And I think the ear can be like a well-sensitized palette. You can really train it to appreciate and recognize different genres of music. Yeah, yeah. It requires a bit of work, yep. I suppose, sometimes yep. to listen to. But, you know, some people sort of abhor classical music. Yeah, but yeah. But given the time, I'm sure they could uh, can adjust to that. Yeah, and I guess I've never... I don't like to categorize things and go, oh, gosh, you know, I can only listen to this type of music, you know. Um, and I think that in itself is, you know, it's probably fairly naive, so you're a much better musician than I am, because you are a musician. Yeah. Um, so I'm probably not going to overthink it, I'm just going to respond quite yeah. naturally, which is actually, when I get asked about, you know, an audience member coming to opera for the first time, and people kind of overthink it and go, gosh, is that for me, or what do I do, or what do I listen for, or how do I behave, or would I like it? And I just always say, you know, just... Let it wash over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just relax chill out just come and just let it speak to you in the way it will speak to you and you'll get your own response you know and it's a very natural response and that's a a good thing you can't read a review or be told something and have an opinion imprinted on you this is how you have to feel when you listen to certain music it's that you can feel whatever you feel you know and some singers elicit a different response too that you know they can be singing the same opera and different productions but one will go straight to the heart or, yeah. or whatever yeah. yes depending yeah. on the, the timbre of the voice yeah where did you learn about the arts management course at WAPA? so when i was working in the clubs um i think i felt that i just this is something i wanted to sort of do i didn't want to go back to sort of banking or whatever and um i think it was really just word of mouth it just um uh, yeah, I heard about it and I investigated it. Certainly didn't Google it in those days, so uh, I would have made a phone call yeah. <laughs> um, and gone out and had a chat with the course directors. And that was in the days where you really did have to apply, and there was no automatic entry no. And at the time. An interview it was sort of and interviews, and they loved taking somebody with a bit of life experience. So I was probably in my early to mid-twenties at the time, you know, it wasn't straight from school, so you did have a little bit of that sort of experience and knowledge and... and you've been producing secure. parties yourself, you'd have yeah, a decent yeah. amount of experience, yeah. Yeah, and we'd had a small shop, you know, selling things and, um, you know, in the fashion world and whatnot. Um, so I think I had a, enough of a grounding there, and I do remember the day I got accepted into arts management, I was incredibly excited, I mean, I was just so excited to go there because I felt like I'd found a home there were going to be other people there who sort of thought like me or felt like me and that was incredibly exciting what sort of subjects would you study in an arts management course so we did things like again it's not all sort of artsy Um, the things that I found really really useful were things like economics and HR and budgeting and law and we went off campus to do some of those I also took out um, journalism 
um, in another faculty. Um, and then we did, yeah, some of the more practical stuff. And, you know, some of the practical stuff was working front of house for the theatre shows that were going on. Um, what about dealing with the artistic temperament? Yeah. How do you learn that? So Is that I an on-the-job learning? I don't think or? you learn that. <laughs> right. I think you just have to have an empathy. I don't think you can go to Whopper or anywhere else and kind of go, okay, I'll learn how to... I mean, a little bit of HR comes into that, yeah. but I, I just think you have to be empathetic but you also have to have a true love for the arts what we're all trying to achieve together it's a collaborative um, experience it's isn't it? so yeah. collaborative yeah. yeah I often talk about we trade in human emotion um, but I think you all have to understand that that's that is a trading tool and you have to respect that and nurture that and be very very careful of that um, that's beautiful but you can't trade in human emotion yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so I think you know it speaks to having an empathetic nature I suppose um, and also understanding that we all have a role to play in that so you know you put on great work and you will see somebody on a stage whether it's you know theatre, dance, um, you know opera, orchestra, concerts, um, rock music whatever it might be but behind that is so many resources to get to you know that, that sort of person representing so much at the top of the iceberg but underneath all that is so much work and the bringing together of all those resources so well in your role as, as general manager of the opera company you're dealing with uh, staff crew sponsors cast musicians patrons yes. creatives yep yep that's a big big ask to deal with all those disparate sort of it's a big ask. Shareholders. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, then they're all really important stakeholders, and you've got to give everybody time and attention and respect. Um, you know, we always want something from people, whether it's the work they do as artists or the resources, the funding, the money that we can get from state government and donors and sponsors. And you know, it's a really hard game, and it's a really sort of it's a yeah. big, wide loop that you know, circle that we have to go around and around and around and around on. Um, so I think you know, a lot of it is you know about your networks and um, dealing with people. It's all yeah. about people. Yeah. You know, that's our widget. It's people. Now, this is, this is um, I'm framing this nationally, but why do you think there are not more women in management roles? See, I've, in the arts, I've always come across a lot of women. Yeah. Um, in management? Yeah, yeah. Often in management. I mean, even as we speak today of the four, uh, well, five, five major opera companies, so Opera Australia is, um, is run by man. Wonderful man, yep. uh, Rory Jeffs. Um, he's doing a very fine job indeed. But the other companies are all run by women in the executive director role. So right. Opera Queensland, State of South Australia, Orchestra Victoria, and at West Australian Opera, all run by women. That's probably a new thing where it's everybody, so yep. a lot of people have taken over from a man. Um, but even in theatre, I found there were quite a few women running the theatre companies. Um, so yeah, I guess in my experience, it hasn't all been sort of male-oriented. Um, and the same with artistic directors. That's often been very strong women as well. Yeah. Um, were there a lot of women doing the arts management course when you did yes. it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah Good there balance. were. There were. And when I reflect on my years there, um, and I look around at what people are doing today, very few people are still working in the arts industry. So I don't know if that's reflective. So to the point of, you know, why aren't there more women in general? I, I think... Some people do choose different paths. I think the you, the investment in your own time and what you have to give up 
to stay in the arts and I've now been in the arts for you know three coming up for four decades um, I do think that there's a lot of um, you've got a lot of skin in the game and uh, you know you've got to keep thick skin but um, it takes a pound of flesh it really does and a lot of that is around the hours so you can imagine if you're working in the office because you're you know looking after your stakeholders and admin and staff during the day you know you may work sort of eight o'clock till five o'clock six o'clock in your day job and then you've got performances in the evening you're hosting sponsors and stakeholders and funders and looking after people Um, they become very long days and it's hard to sustain that so I think it takes a certain person um, in general I'm not just talking about myself but in general I think you know you have to take your hat off to a lot of administrators all the way around the country and an understanding family too I suppose yeah yeah yeah, of course well or or that goes by the wayside you know after a while you you know you're asking a lot of um, you know the people you live with for you not to be there for you, you know to cover your absence yeah. You know, and that's a that's a very big thing as well. How old is the West Australian Opera Company? So we celebrated our fiftieth anniversary in twenty seventeen. Um, so fifty two years now. Wow. Um, and again in Western Australia, I think it's a really powerful thing that we have basically the oldest opera company trading under the same name and the same constitution. So Obviously, Opera Australia is, is a bit older than us, but it's been under many sort of guises and iterations, as have the other companies. But we've got um, you know, the oldest opera company, ballet company, orchestra. That speaks a lot to the value I think we provide to the state and the goodwill from the general public to want to have these institutions in a place like Perth, you yeah. know, a very isolated city, but we do have the, the great art forms, um, you know, and the fact that, you know, I mean, for us, you know, we're in an art form that's sort of over 400 years old, but we've existed for over 50 years, and so is the ballet, and so is the orchestra, yeah. and I think that's really that's quite impressive. phenomenal, yeah. you know, and that also goes with, you know, having beautiful venues as well, and I know we need more money into venues, we need more money into the arts, but we do have a very good baseline. We're based in His Majesty's Theatre, which is gorgeous. At the moment, it's undergoing renovation again to um, upgrade all the foyers and to do some work on the orchestra pit. So, you know, there's a wherewithal to keep, you know, to for us all to flourish. We do need more money. Yeah. Um, but again, we'd all say that anywhere around the country or indeed the world, we all need more money into the arts. And we're not talking, you know, millions we're talking billions you know imagine if you actually invested in the arts in the same way we invest in other sectors in the community you could actually really make a difference you know if we got you know 25 million dollars we could be self-sustaining you know it would be a game changer you could then focus on the art not focus on the resources and where you get all the money from yeah because why is opera so expensive to produce it's around the people. There are so many people. Yeah. So, um, you know, you've got an entire orchestra. You've got a chorus of, you know, um, well, for us, you know, it's usually about 32 or 36 people. But you could also have a chorus that's double that number if you could afford it. Yeah. Um, and you've got any number of principles depending on the work that you're doing. And again, depending on how complicated the production is, you've got any number of backstage crew and stage management. So a lot of it is actually in the people. Right. Um, and then, of course, you know, opera often is very lush and large. 
Um, so that comes with, you know, you can spend two and a half million dollars on a new production, three million dollars on building a new production with all the scene changes and all the beautiful lavish costumes, beautiful lighting, sets, costumes, props. That's where the money is. In opera, we tend to build to last. So we're not going to build something sort of very, very cheaply um, and then throw it away. We tend to build things that will then have a life beyond. So there's an efficiency there, sort of, you know, economies yeah, of scale. Yeah. But um, really, it's, it's about, you know, the size of the production, but it's about the people, you know, and it's rewarding people. And that's what attract, attracts audiences, I guess. They want to see big stories played out on a big stage yeah. with a big sound. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and it's, you know, life lived large, really. You know, you're getting... Um, the beauty of the art form, you you need to invest in what people want to see. They don't want to come and see something that's sort of half done. You've got to have that lushness and lavishness in there. Does some of the audience miss out because the cost is so prohibitive for a ticket? Um, look, I think we've tried to reduce those barriers to attendance. So we do something here called Opera in the Park every year, which is a free opera in the park, Great. just as the tin says. Yeah. Um, and it means you invest your time, but even if you don't know, like, or understand opera, it's very little risk to you because you can bring a picnic, you can bring your family, you can sit outdoors, so you've got a beautiful experience of you know, seeing opera in a very easy way in the summer months. Um, so that's sort of reducing um, some of those barriers. Coming into the theatre, we've got a range of sort of ticket prices. We're also trying to look at how we enable people to come and not have to adhere to dress code. So theatre etiquette, you know, um, opera is often seen as being a sort of dress-up art form. And yes, certainly we've had elitism. beautiful black tie opening nights and the elitism comes into that. Yeah. But we've reduced that. So, you know, some our opening nights now, we just say, you know, wear whatever you want. Um, we're also testing a few things like, you know, can you take your drink into the theatre? A lot of people say to us, but I go to the movies and I can take my drink in, or I go to a concert and I can take my drink in. So we're having a look at that. Right. Um, well, don't let that happen. Well, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> it's a bit of a test to see. Yeah. And we, you know, I think we just have to remain open yes. to trying well, things. I guess, I and guess. right at this moment in time, yeah. the theatre foyers are all closed and they're going to be a thing of beauty when they've reopened. But it's a six-month project. So while that's happening, yeah. we've got to do something to, um, you know, refresh the audience. So we're trialling that. Now, it might only be for the period of time that theaters, the theatre foyers are closed. But on the other hand, if that's something that works and has an appetite for people, I think you need to be really agile in the arts, yeah. you know, because we've always done things a certain way. Yes. I don't think it means we just keep doing it that certain way. Well, in once upon a time, everything started at 8 p.m. Exactly. And now we've got 7 p.m. and 6.30 starts. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly, exactly. Performances on a Sunday. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the other things about you know, the art form of opera as well is that it's usually very lengthy, you know, it might be three hours, four hours or five hours, it might have one interval or two intervals or indeed more, you know. Yeah. So you're actually asking people to invest a lot of themselves, you know, it's not just money but it's also time. Yeah, yeah. Are we good at philanthropy in this country, do you think? Because you go to, go to America and programs yeah. are just full of sponsors and benefactors. Yeah, I think America certainly have been in that space a lot longer than Australians have but we're doing as well as we can. We've done a lot in that space over about the last 15 years. We're getting better and better at it. And people are actually very generous. Um, I think if you ask people, they respond very well. Um, 
I guess the difference with America is do we have enough, enough people to ask? So, you know, do we have enough of a population who are rich and who are real philanthropists? So we've got some wonderful donors who will give what they can. Getting those big checks in like America does is probably part of the future. Um, we do have half a dozen wonderful, wonderful people who support our company and indeed others. And then we've also got great sponsors. Um, our principal partner is West Farmers and in Western Australia, they actually support pretty much everybody. Yeah. Without West Farmers, I don't know where the state of the arts would be in Western Australia. You know, they yeah. really have taken that leadership position. And um, behind them are a lot of individuals who have been utterly wonderful in this space. Yeah, great. We touched on technology. Does the opera company embrace social media to market? Yeah, now, we is do. that something that everybody needs to do now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we have well, when we when we do our launch, you know, um, we will launch our brochure online. We do, of course, have the print, beautiful print brochure as well. Yep. But sort of, um, we kind of do the print brochure, and we appeal to print media, and we have people in front of us that we speak to. Um, but we also have. A young person who's our social media manager and he gets in all the influencers and the bloggers and um, they'll come and see the show so you know it's a space that we really are on the front foot with um, but it's a big new world I think for everybody but yeah. we've kind of been in there from the word go so we try to be as agile as possible and we try to kind of remain open-minded about you know what we need to be doing but the whole marketing mix has changed you know it's completely yeah disrupted and we have to be part of that disruption what do you need to consider when you're programming a season for the for the next year or so <laughs> yeah. obviously that's done yeah. 12 months or more in advance yeah but yeah, in selecting least. repertoire what what do you need to take in? we're really mindful of what we think audiences want to see now we don't always get it right but um how do we know what they even want to see you know is by talking to them by surveying them by looking at trends so that's part of the answer but also, we've got to look at what we can afford to do. You know, we have limited resources, um, as does any arts company. So we've got to be very, very careful about how we apply those resources. And then we've got to look at um, the availability of people, so people to sing. People with an international opera career most likely don't live in Perth. Yeah. So meaning you've got to bring them in, you've got to book them up in advance. So you've also got to look at... Um, the productions that might be available. So there's many titles that um, we could do. And indeed, sometimes audience will say, why haven't you done A, B or C as an opera title? But we can only put work on that we can actually hire or build or present in this theatre. Um, our theatre, the stage is the same footprint size as Sydney Opera House, but we don't have all the back wing space, we right. don't have the fly tower, yeah, yeah. we don't have anywhere to saw scenery in between acts. Um, one of the things I was most proud of presenting many, many years ago was Richard Mill's opera Batavia, and that had been produced that was by quite Opera an artistic Australia. success. That won awards too, didn't it? It won Help many, many, or, yeah, yeah, many, many awards. Mm. And that was commissioned by the Centenary of Federation and it was on in Melbourne for two performances in two, 2001. And there it was going to sort of begin and end. And I'd spoken to Richard Mills just when I first started working with him and said, this is a West Australian story and it should be seen in Western Australia. 
but it didn't actually fit our theatre. So in my naivety, so I think you know, it goes back to you know perhaps just thinking outside the box or being a bit innovative. In my naivety, I said, well, can't we just sort of bump it out through the you know backstage back into the truck it came in? Yeah. Which seemed really silly. <laughs> Ultimately, that's what we did. So we did present Batavia, and did Hume kindly programmed it into one of her Perth festivals. And um, it was a great success, and we were able to do it. But, you know, did it naturally fit into this theatre? No. Do you do co-productions with companies around the the country? We do. We do a lot of co-productions. So we've got one that we're um, bumping in at the moment, which is um, the Scottish Opera. The Scottish Opera, yes. And that is being directed by Stuart Mondo, who is the Artistic Director of State Opera of South Australia. Um, So we've been speaking with him for the last few years about various things that we could do together, and that is a collaboration which we're building with State Opera of South Australia. And we're about to open it here in Perth, they'll do it in Adelaide next year Um, so that's just a way of sharing costs if you can find enough sort of like-minded companies who want to do the same thing as you at the same time and have got the funds to invest in actually producing something Um, but we do we invariably co-produce or collaborate I mean collaboration is key in the arts what is it about your job leading an opera company that you enjoy the most I've always had a passion for the arts. I've always had that fire in my belly and I've never actually lost it. Um, I think just the fact that um, we can make a difference, that um, you know, that we can make something that matters to people. Um, you know, the arts feed the soul and um, I think people underestimate how important it is. I don't think people actually think about the arts in their everyday lives. Um, you know, people sort of get up and do the daily grind without actually thinking that this is kind of a form of relief. Um, it takes you out of yourself. You know, this week is Mental Health Week. Yep. Um, so there's a lot of stories that are coming out. And I think, you know, all we do in the arts, we tell stories. You know, we trade in human emotion, we tell stories, and we let people have a little bit of a respite. You know, there's moments of real beauty in the music that you're listening to, or the singing that you're hearing, or the acting that you're viewing, or the costumes, or the lighting, or the scenery or just the sum of the whole and even just sitting in a theatre together with other people experience the same thing you know just there's something kind of magical about that so I think you know I've never lost that sense of wonderment so I'm very fortunate to do what I do do you have an opening night ritual something that you a process you go through every time there's an opening night for superstition or no i'm no? not superstitious okay. no i wish i did i wish i could say this is what i do but i actually don't um no and i think in a way that kind of normalizes everything so just put on the glad rags and i guess turn that's, up. Yep. i guess that's part of the the ritual is putting on your glad rags and you know um i'll put on all my rings and all my jewelry and you know um do a little bit of extra makeup or whatever, and you know, put on your good shoes and things like that. So I suppose there's a ritual of adornment, you know, whether that goes back to, you know, just finding your own facade to put on, your own armour as a person, or maybe it goes back to my love of fashion and um, influence. That's actually a very interesting question. Excellent. Carolyn, thank you. That's You've been very insightful and uh, into running an opera company and, and your background, um, and I uh, really appreciate your time with Stages. Thank you, Peter. West Australian Opera's production of Macbeth concluded its season last night and was received with great acclaim. 
The 2020 season has recently launched and amongst the highlights are Jimmy Chee's Brand New Day, which you'll be able to see as it tours the nation, Hansel and Gretel, Fidelio, Cosi Fantute and a world premiere, Star Navigator, composed by Mr Tim Finn. So if you're in WA any time through the year, do check out what is being offered by WA Opera and have a look at the wonderful His Majesty's Theatre, where much of their work plays. In the next episode, I talk with playwright Tommy Murphy, and he provides great insight into his process in creating some of the magnificent stories he's shared with us on the stage. His new work, Packer and Sons, is currently in rehearsal and opens in November at the Belvoir Street Theatre. I'm Peter Ayers, and you've been listening to Stages. Catch you next time.